We continue today in our series, Processing Grief by the Goodness of God. And the message is entitled, Grief and the Sovereignty of God, with our text, Job chapter 1, primarily verses 20 through 22, but also drawing from the overall story of Job. So if you want to make your way uh, to that Old Testament book, I'll join you there in just a moment, and we'll read uh, several verses. Suffering is a normal part of life. It's an unfortunate, everyday reality. From the occasional sickness to terminal cancer. From losing something important to losing a loved one. We all face various forms of suffering and grief in life. How can we get through it? How can we face it? And how can we persevere? Jeremy McKean said, No captain of a ship sets out on a long voyage anticipating all calm waters. No, he prepares his boat to make it through the storm. So how do we prepare the boat of our lives to make it through the storms of life? I believe that your view of God, particularly as it relates to the sovereignty of God, will determine in large part how you process grief, how you face it, and how you persevere through it. We have several stated goals for this series. Goal number one is to help you understand what grief is. Goal number two is to help us understand how God ministers to us in our grief. Goal number three is to help us effectively process grief. And goal number four is to help us be a blessing to others in their grief. Grief has been defined as a state of intense sadness that is typically associated with the loss of a significant person or aspect of life. Grief may arise from a variety of experiences in life. We experience grief ultimately because we live in a sin-fallen world. We struggle with sin daily in our lives, and we experience heartache and pain that brings grief. We learn from Psalm 34 that grief causes us to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. We find ourselves in despair due to the circumstances of life that bring a loss of hope. And yet God is near to us in our grief. When you are crushed in spirit, you can feel the pain of distress. And yet God rescues us from our grief and he saves us when we are crushed in spirit. Because God is good, he is faithful, and he can be trusted. Our text today is from Job 1. And the story of Job is known to many people, if not most, at least in a general sense, a general concept of what the theme of the book is. There are some deep theological truths within the story that I think can help us significantly in our grief. The first verse of the book sounds almost mysterious. It's almost like it's a part of a grand story. Verse 1, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. Job likely lived during the time of the patriarchs, which would have been around 2100 to 1900 B.C., If you were to fit it chronologically within the Bible, it would roughly be in the time of Genesis. 
He lived in the land of Uz. Nobody knows exactly where Uz was, but it was probably a place somewhere outside of Canaan, maybe in the desert region. He was wealthy in every respect. He had seven sons and three daughters and significant material holdings, including land and animals. In that culture, status and wealth was often measured by the size of one's family, and that alone made Job a man of status. Job's sons would go and feast in their houses, each on their appointed day. And it seems that Job's family had a happy and close relationship. They were blessed. Job was a godly man, as expressed in his rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings. So in that sense, he served sort of like a priest in his own family. Job 1 tells of a scene in heaven where Satan comes to accuse Job before God. It says that he's been roaming to and fro about the earth. And here was Job, this man who was blameless and righteous. He was not perfect, but he was devoted. He was respectful. He was obedient to God. And God is actually the one who brings Job up in reference to his godliness and his character. And God says that there was no one on the earth like him, a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. And then Satan insisted that Job only served God because God protected him. He sarcastically asked in verse 10, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? Remember, the name Satan means adversary, and he serves as the accuser of the brethren. And here we find him accusing Job, but for him to accuse Job, he's also accusing God. And he indicated that God had placed this hedge around Job and blessed him, and he wanted permission from God to test Job's faith and his loyalty to God. And he insisted that Job would curse God to his face if his protection and his blessing were withdrawn. So as the story goes, God gave permission with boundaries limited to the life of Job. And Trapp wrote, he said, but we must know that God's end in this large grant was not to gratify the devil, but to glorify himself by making Satan an instrument of his own shame and infamy. Now there is an aspect in grief that does not come directly from our own sin. It doesn't come from persecution for righteousness, but it is according to the sovereignty of God for his greater and more eternal purposes. And what followed the exchange in heaven is that Job suffered tragic and catastrophic losses within the span of a few hours. He lost his oxen, his servants, his sheep, his camels, his sons, his daughters, as they were feasting in the oldest brother's house. And as the story goes, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing, the Sabians swooped down and took them away and killed the servants. And then fire fell from heaven and burned the sheep and the servants were devoured, save one. The Chaldeans came in three bands and they raided the camels and they took them away and killed the servants. 
And then the sons and the daughters were swept away by a powerful wind that collapsed the house. And the messengers came to Job to tell him what had happened. And we pick up reading in Job 1 and verse 20. And here's what the Bible says. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, particularly as it relates to our suffering and processing our grief, we come with the understanding that a sovereign is understood to be a ruler. A sovereign is a king, a lord, one who rules over all. One theologian said that the sovereignty of God is a consequence of his omniscience because God knows everything that there is to know. His omnipotence, God has all power. And his omnipresence, God is everywhere at once. We are speaking of a God who is sovereign, who has no beginning. He has no end. He is outside of time. He is the primary cause of all that there is. And God in his sovereignty permits free will, meaning that he lets people make choices, but each person is accountable to God for the choices that they make. Ultimately, the truth that God is sovereign means this. He has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses to do within his creation that is consistent with his character. God cannot do anything that is inconsistent with his character, but God can do anything that is consistent with his character. So in these few moments that we have together, I want to show you three ways that the truth that God is sovereign is helpful in our grief. First, the truth that God is sovereign can help you process your pain. Verse 20 indicates the actions that Job took when the message of what had happened came to him. Five of the nine Hebrew words in this verse are verbs. And Job is the subject of them all. He got up. He tore. He shaved. He fell. And he worshipped. Job had been seated as he listened to the reports of the messengers. That was customary in the Middle Eastern times, particularly if one was in a position of authority or a position of status, that when he would receive visitors, he would be seated and he would hear the message that the visitors had brought to him. And as he's in that seated position, his first response was to get up. And Job deeply mourned his tremendous losses He did not mourn like unbelievers around him would have. He did not cut himself or make markings on himself for the dead, which were common practices of the ancient people. But rather, he tore his robe, symbolizing the turmoil that was in his heart. The robe would have been an outer garment that was worn by people of rank. And when he tore his robe, he went on to shave his head as a visible sign of what he was experiencing. All he lacked in that moment uh, was the sackcloth and ashes that were common in those days when people came 
to a time of mourning and grief. Mourning in times of grief is a recognition of the reality of pain. And I've seen people from time to time almost shrink back from the reality of the pain because they've got questions going on in their mind, something like this. What will my grieving say about my faith in God? What will people think of me if I grieve this situation? Is this really how it's supposed to be in life? And I'm here to tell you today, don't let the fog that appears in the grief cause you to lose sight of what you are experiencing. We have to process it in order to get through it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Grief Observed, wrote, we are promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And Lewis said, I accept it. I've got nothing that I had not bargained for. But then he says, of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself and not to others. When it happens in reality and not in the imagination. Job 5 and verse 8 says, but man is born of trouble as the sparks fly upward. He got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Grief in the morning that comes along with it can do one of two things in our lives. It can either cause us to try to run from the reality of what we're experiencing It can cause us to try to shy away from God and not deal with it and not face it for what it is. Or mourning in the grief that causes it can cause us to draw directly into the reality of God and especially the reality of the sovereignty of God. And the initial response of Job was not to shake his fist at God and say, why me, Lord? but rather to humble himself in submission to the sovereign will of God. You see, Job decided to worship God in spite of what he was feeling in that moment. And yes, later on in the book, we learn more about the depths of his struggle, and we learn more about the questions that he asked, and we learn more about his hurts. But the first reaction that he had is quite telling, and it reveals what was ultimately in his heart. And I want you to know that oftentimes the first response that we have to the grief that we're experiencing is something that gives insight into where we are spiritually. And Job was a man who understood the sovereignty of God over every circumstance. I think about the time in King David's life in 2 Samuel 12 and following after his sin with Bathsheba. You remember Bathsheba bore a child and the child became very ill. So David uh, basically pleaded with God for the child. He fasted. He actually uh, lay on the ground all night. And then on the seventh day, the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him. But the news finally came. The child was dead. So David arose from the ground, he washed and he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. This was a curious turn of events. David then went to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he began to eat. 
And his servants were a bit puzzled. And they asked him why he had fasted and why he had wept while the child was alive. But when the child died, he had arisen and eaten food. And here was David's reply. When the child was alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? He said, I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. You see, the truth of the sovereignty of God in our pain does not ignore what we're dealing with. It hits it head on. And it goes to God, which can lead us to worship. Now, I want you to listen to this very carefully. This might be the most important thing that I say today. There are many things in this life that are out of our control, admittedly. However, the fact that they are out of our control does not mean they are out of God's control. I'm going to say that again for emphasis. There are many things in this life that are out of our control, but the fact that they are out of our control does not mean they are out of God's control. And if you recognize that you have significant limits in your humanity and that God has no limits in his deity, then that can help you process your pain because you're recognizing the limitations in this life and the limits that we face, but you're recognizing that God has no such limits and he can be trusted. And further, what happens now in your grief and your pain is not the end of the story, not even close. And that was the point that David was making. He said, I will go to him, but he shall not return to me. What was David saying? He was saying, hey, this life is not all that there is. I know where he is. I know he's in the presence of God. And we've got to remind ourselves of that continually, that the way things are in the moment is not the end of the story. Not even close. And we worship God believing that he knows what we do not know. He sees what we cannot see. He is able to do what we cannot do. And most of all, he loves us and he has promised not to forsake us. Second, the truth that God is sovereign can help you find peace. Now we focus on verse 21. In grief, we eventually have to come to the place where we analyze the situation that we find ourselves in. And that time came quickly for Job, and I think he analyzed it in a way that was wise and godly. And he says, first of all, naked I came from my mother's womb. He's just stating the obvious. Each of us arrives into this world with nothing. So what follows with that is that everything that we have is something that we once did not have. And everything we have is a blessing from the hand of God who saw fit to give it to us. 
We came with nothing and everything that's been added to us in our lives and everything that has continued to be added to us in our lives is something that the Lord gives. And he says that specifically, the Lord gives. Anything you have is a gift from God and it is undeserved. And this should make everything that we have all the more sweeter because we humbly recognize the source. And I want you to know that the giver is always greater than the gift. So our worship is directed not toward the gift, Our affection and our devotion is not directed toward the gift. Our affection and our devotion and our gratitude is always directed toward the giver. Because he's the source. And James 1 and verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, The Lord gives is easy to understand and to embrace. But that's not all that Job said. He said, and the Lord takes away. Now this is a hard truth that is going to take us into some deep waters, but here it is. It was Job's perspective that in the sovereignty of God, the Lord had taken away his family and his possessions. Job could have pointed to the wicked men who killed his servants. He could have pointed to the natural disaster that took away his children. But he chose rather to look to the sovereign God of the universe And put his trust in him. And this was a turning point for him. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 27 and verse 13 and 14. I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he said wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And remember suffering and death are ultimately the result of living in a fallen world. And Satan was directly behind the tragedies. uh, And directing the pain that came into Job's life. But what is a mystery here is how God divinely allows suffering to happen. And while we know that all circumstances are not good, God uses all circumstances for our good and for his glory. Now, sometimes people misread and misapply that verse. And in misreading and misapplying that verse, what they try to do is they try to skim over the reality of whatever awful thing it is that they're dealing with. And for us to process our grief, we got to just see it like it is. Many things that you have and are experiencing right now, or we will experience in the future, in and of themselves are not good. They're very painful. They're very hurtful. They alter the trajectory of our lives many times. They bring pain to us and the people around us that love us and care about us. But we know in the midst of that, that God can use these circumstances for our good and for his glory. Romans 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. He did not say that all things are good. He said all things work together for the good. And later on, in reference to some of the questions that Job had in the story as he is processing this and interacting with God and asking questions and so on, 
we find the depths of that exchange between Job and God as he's processing his grief. He replied to the Lord in Job 42 and verse 1 and following, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Let me just pause here and say that's one of the strongest affirmations of the sovereignty of God in all the Bible. It does not need qualification. It doesn't need explanation. It stands for what it is. And then Job said, you asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Friends, Job's getting taken to the woodshed here. Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak. And when I question you, you will inform me. I had heard the reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. There are many things that we cannot understand. And there are many things that I am firmly convinced we will never understand. But we can find peace in the sovereignty of God. Some people have this concept that when they get to heaven that they're somehow going to put God on trial and they're going to get all their questions answered that were never answered on this earth. And they're going to step up and they're going to boldly ask God for explanations for everything that God has done. And I'm here to tell you that God owes no man an explanation. And there are many things that we just have to rest in the fact that God is sovereign. He does what he pleases. He acts according to his will. And we'll never know the answer. Just embrace it. And when you embrace that, you understand that God is greater than your questions. And he cares for you more than you could ever know or imagine. Lehman Strauss, the Bible teacher, said the child of God must be continually mindful that his heavenly father programs everything that happens to him. The trials that come, whether slight or severe, are for his good. And an understanding of this truth will give the believer in Christ the assurance of safety and security. He says further, naked, I will leave this life. We brought nothing with us into this world. And we're not taking anything out of this world when we leave. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 15 says, As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. So I ask you this question. Why do we hold so tightly to things in this life that can be gone in a moment or that we ultimately cannot take with us? Why do we cling to things and hoard up things and gather to us and try to protect all these things that we cannot ultimately take with us? Wouldn't it be a better path for us to invest what we have starting with ourselves for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom, of his will? Would it not be better for us rather than living in fear about the people that we love the most and the people that are closest to us and the people that we have the deepest relationships with? Would it not be better for us just to commit them to the Lord and know that they are in the hands of the Lord? And if they're in the hands of the Lord, why do I need to waste my time worrying? Because he's far more capable than I am. And he'll see them through just like he'll see me through. 
And church, I am stunned by Job's unshaken commitment to God and his love for God. And my prayer for myself and for you and for our church is that our faith would be growing in its maturity so that we can come and say, we didn't bring anything to this world. We're not going to take anything out of this world. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Third, the truth that God is sovereign can help strengthen your purpose. Now verse 22, it says that throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Job was right to understand that God was ultimately sovereign in all things in this life, even if the immediate reason for certain events came at the hands of men or in the form of natural disaster. And here's what Job did. Job stood firm and he did not give in to fear. You can stand firm and you do not have to give in to fear. Job stood firm and he did not pretend that he was not hurting. You can stand firm and at the same time not pretend that you're not hurting. Job stood firm and he humbled himself in the sight of God. And you can stand firm and you can humble yourself in the sight of God. Job stood firm and he kept his eyes focused on eternity, even though at the moment there was something very difficult that he was dealing with. And you can stand firm and you can keep your eyes focused directly on eternity, on God, and not on the moment. And Job stood firm and he did not sin or blame God for anything. And in your suffering and in your grief, you can stand firm and not sin or blame God for anything with his help. That's the kind of faith we want to cultivate and we want to grow in. And Job would say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now listen to this. When the temporary is taken away in this life, the eternal still remains. You understand there's more coming. That's what we sang about just a little while ago. We were singing it as well. We're, we're singing about the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us when he bore our suffering, when he took our pain on the cross, when he stepped directly into our experience, when he was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. We are focusing on that, that all of our sins were nailed to the cross. But that was not the end of the story. Not only were all our sins nailed to the cross, but in the power of the resurrection, he was raised from the dead. But that's not the end of the story because he ascended back into heaven and he's seated now at the right hand of God the Father. But that's not the end of the story. He's coming again. And what he is doing when he comes again is he is going to take us to be with him. And we will be with him forever. This is the blessed hope. This is what we long for, eternity in the presence of God. So you can remind yourself, no matter how dark the moment is, no matter how heavy the grief is, no matter how great the disappointment is, you just continually remind yourself, this is not all there is. This is not the end of the story, not even close. And one writer noted that contrary to Satan's forecast of failure, Job has the same good opinion of God's blessedness even when things went wrong. But that kind of faith cannot survive without a terrible struggle. When Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord, there's something that stood out to me here about this. 
in the study, he used the same word that Satan used in verse 11 as a euphemism with the opposite meaning. You say, why does that matter? Because it was a forceful move on Job's part because instead of cursing God, which was what the prediction was, Satan said, hey, he's going to curse you to your face. All he's doing that for is because you blessed him. And Job didn't curse God. He praised him. It was the exact opposite. And I want to read from Isaiah 46 and verse 9 and following that reinforces the sovereignty of God. It says, remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. Now listen to what verse 10 says, Isaiah 46. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done. Saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will bring it about. I have planned it. I will also do it. Now, here's something that was underlying that I think is also of importance for us to be able to prepare ourselves, process the grief, find peace in it, and also find our purpose. I believe what the scripture reflects is that Job cultivated a spirit of praise in times of abundance that prepared him and also revealed his true nature in a time of calamity. So let me say that to you another way. If you're not dealing with the calamity right now, you're not in the middle of the grief right now, it'd be a very good time to strengthen your faith and to prepare yourself for what's to come. Because none of us are going to get out of this life experience without processing very difficult things. And are you cultivating a spirit of praise in your life that will ultimately be revealed in a time of trouble? How we deal with these things reflects our faith. And I say that not to discourage you. Sometimes people's faith is weak and it's reflected. And it's an opportunity for them to understand and to process it and to grow from it. Other times, people's faith is strong, and that's very evident when they deal with these types of things. And it's an example, a witness, a testimony to everyone around them. And the point is not where you are on that continuum, but are you growing in your trust in the Lord? Are you growing in your faith and your confidence in the sovereignty of God? Because we know how difficult grief can be. The author, Edgar Jackson, described the reality of it. He said, grief is a young widow trying to raise her three children alone. Grief is the man so filled with shocked uncertainty and confusion that he strikes out at the nearest person. Grief is a mother walking daily to a nearby cemetery to stand quietly and alone for a few minutes before going about the task of her day. She knows that a part of her is in the cemetery just as a part of her is in her daily work. Grief is the silence and sadness that comes when you start to speak of someone who is no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after you've been eating with someone else for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to 
go to bed at night without saying goodnight to the one who has passed. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not and they never will be again. Grief, in summary, is a whole set of adjustments, apprehensions, and uncertainties that strike us in life and make it difficult to redirect our strength. The reality of grief will either lead you to despair or to determination. Despair will lead you down a dark and destructive path that will not be helpful to you and it will not be helpful to the people who are around you. Determination and faith will lead you down a path that will build your confidence in God even when you don't understand, you don't have the answer. And it will be a blessing ultimately to you and to those around you. I close with Psalm 31 and verse 24. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. That's the message. Because Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf so that we could be delivered from all of our sufferings, we have hope. And if you're dealing with grief today, the loss of it could be something that's fresh on your mind, just happened recently, could be something you've been dealing with for several years. I want you to know this. God loves you. He's faithful. He can be trusted. And this is not the end of the story. It's not. Father, thank you today that you are sovereign. That's sometimes a difficult truth for us to digest and to apply to our lives. But Lord, we receive it on faith. We thank you that you saw fit to send your only son into this world as our Savior. And that because of what he suffered, the pain that he endured, we'll be delivered and freed from anything that we might suffer in this life. And may we declare with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in the midst of that, Lord, may we be thankful for the things you have given. And at the same time, entrust to you the things that you take away. And we know that this is not the end. The best is yet to come. The blessings are going to far outweigh the burdens. And we await that. Strengthen our faith. Deepen our resolve. Help us to apply that spirit of determination with whatever it is that we're dealing with. And Lord, may we be an encouragement to those around us as they too experience the grief of life. 
So now, Lord, we ask that if there are any who might hear this message that have never come to a saving faith in Christ, they don't have that same assurance and hope that this is not the end of the story, that they'd not delay, they'd not wait, but they would trust in Jesus Christ by faith and take hold of these same truths for their lives. Lord, part of our gathering together like we are today is either to be instructed on what we can do when we face these very things in life or to be reminded. And Lord, in that instruction and in that reminder, you build your church. You strengthen your children. And Lord, find us faithful. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.